Welcome to the Aviation Scopecast. In this monthly podcast, we cover current events that impact the aviation industry. And whether it is the manufacturers, the airlines, the financial markets, or just little bits and pieces we stumbled upon, all of it has a chance of being featured on here. Who are we, you might ask? I'm Helen Spro, responsible for the aircraft financing sector at Scope Ratings, and with a background in structuring and arranging aircraft financing transactions. And I am Frank Netscher. I work at Scope Analysis, um, where we cover real assets from an equity perspective. There, I am responsible for all transportation-related assets. So together, Helen and I aim to get you as enthusiastic about aviation as we are. Please keep in mind that our statements reflect our personal opinions, not necessarily Scope's view on the topics covered. With that being said, let's get started. Hello and welcome to Flight 4. And let me start off this uh, episode uh, by saying welcome back from your holiday, Frank. Hmm. Uh, thank you, Alan. Um, it's good to be back and obviously especially back to our podcast, but vacations tend to always be too short. Oh, I agree on that. Did you pick up any historical facts, uh, aviation facts, by the way? Not necessarily while I was away, but I would say that I found a pretty cool historical fact for December that will be hard to top. Um, so to be precise, at the time, my fact was the most watched TV program ever. And I'll, well, I'll help you out a bit and give you the year, 1968. But um, do you want to guess what it was? Uh, Pan Am? No, I'm speaking of the uh, Christmas Eve television broadcast from on board the Apollo 8 moon mission. And ah. um, <laughs> Apollo 8 was the first crewed spacecraft to, to actually leave the Earth's orbit and the first to reach the moon, orbit it and return. And therefore, its astronauts were the first humans to fly to the moon and to um, escape uh, gravity, the Earth gravity. And um, during one of their orbits of the moon, they made their famous Christmas Eve television broadcast. And it is estimated that a quarter of the people alive at the time um, saw the transmission, so either live or then delayed. And um, the broadcast even won them an Emmy Award. And um, the mission also paved the way for Apollo 11 to, to fulfill the goal of landing a man on the moon in the 1960s. And um, one more anecdote since we have the time, I mean, it's our podcast. Even though um, 1968 saw political assassinations, political unrest in the streets of Europe and America, the Prague Spring, Time Magazine choose the crew of Apollo 8 as its Man of the Year, um, recognizing them as people who most influenced events in the preceding year. And I think the, the effect of the Apollo 8 um, was actually summed up nicely in a telegram from one stranger received by one of the astronauts after the mission. And that um, telegram simply stated, thank you, Apollo 8, you saved 1968. <laughs> and one of the most famous aspects of the flight that I believe all of us are aware of in a way, um, well, besides my Christmas broadcast, obviously, but um, um, was the Earthrise picture that the crew took as it orbited the moon. You know, this this famous, famous yeah, picture yeah. of the Earth rising above the moon. So um, this, um, this crew was the one who took it, and it was selected as the first of Life magazine's 100 photographs that changed the world. And, I mean, we all have seen it. And the uh, last fun fact here, Neil Armstrong was actually part of the backup crew. 
So, and uh, speaking of, of Armstrong, um, Helen, do you know who was the second man on the moon? Oh, you're testing my, my historical uh, uh, lack yeah, of but, historical but only to show, now. But only to show you that um, it was probably one of the tougher destinies on this planet. I mean, um, Buzz Aldrin is his name. And he is one of the poorer guys because everybody knows Armstrong and not too many know Aldrin. <laughs> I heard his name. I'll give him that. I heard his name. I, I believe but, he uh, died last year, actually. Did well, what? I didn't check that. Um, no, but but <laughs> what about you? What um, did you find looking into history? Yeah, so, so my historical fact is a bit uh, personal uh, this month. Okay. So on the 23rd of December 2014, uh, Airbus delivered the first A350 ever, and it got delivered to Qatar Airways. Ah. And uh, the reason this is a bit personal for me is because it, the first ever flight with this A350 took place on the 15th of January 2015, and it flew from Doha to Qatar. And then from Frankfurt, uh, no, sorry, from uh, Doha uh, to Frankfurt, and then from Frankfurt back to Doha. And unfortunately, I wasn't on the flight flying Doha Frankfurt, but I was on the <laughs> second ever flight on A350. Uh, so you were the flight. Buzz Aldrin of the A350. You, uh, yeah, you can put it like that. I would agree with that <laughs> uh, that reasoning. Yeah. So and I, I still remember like going into this brand new aircraft that had only had made this one flight before and the the air hoses and everything like everyone was super professional but it was quite interesting to see because they weren't that familiar with the aircraft themselves either so when the passengers ask for certain things you know ice cubes or uh, tiny <laughs> things you can sort of see uh, see that they had to look for it a bit uh, but, because but like Sorry? No, how did it make you feel? I mean, you, you, you mentioned a couple of um, podcasts ago that you're not the most courageous person when it comes to supersonic flights and the likes. <laughs> so you on like the maiden flight of a brand new aircraft model. How was that for you? Um, back then I was mostly fascinated by being allowed to be <laughs> one of the first people in an A350, I have to admit. And I also trusted the crew, you know, even if they can't find me ice cubes straight away, I'm sure they know what to do in an emergency. Uh, so it, it was actually very fun and probably one of the few times in my life I'll experience being one of the, the first few passengers on a new aircraft model. And so, Qatar Airways is a nice airline. I just it was flew lovely. with them. Yeah. Thanks to Lufthansa for going on strike and rebooking me on Qatar Airways. Best decision that Lufthansa made this year. I believe that. <laughs> for you at least, yeah, I know it's a lovely airline. I, have, I agree with that. Huh, nice. Um, yeah. So, no, so I'm, I'm thinking should we, now that we've gone through history, personal history and moon landings, comparing myself to uh, almost to Armstrong, I would say. Um, Buzz Aldrin. Buzz Aldrin is the Buzz, name that you, for, yeah, you yeah. Keep, that you keep forgetting. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, should we move on to our first topic of the month? Yeah, I think this, um, I mean, the question is what will January's historical facts be and only one way to find out. But um, yeah, let's let's move on. So, uh, what about your vacation, actually? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, go on, go on. Um, how exactly did you go back to Germany? Okay, Be beautiful transition. Um, kudos. Um, I had the pleasure, at least on the way back, to to of flying an A380 uh, with Lufthansa, 
And we will start today's flight by, by looking at the A380. And we will also use this last flight before Christmas to remind investors what is important to keep in mind when investing into the industry, not only in 2020, but in general. And we will be ending today's episode um, by taking a closer look on the developments that we have seen in Norwegian since our last podcast. So, um, I heard that the first A380 has now been completely dismantled. Um, in the current environment, there is no real alternative to this, is there? But it's still like a sad thought, isn't it? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, it's still a comparatively new aircraft. And the first commercial flight uh, was only in 2007. It's just 12 years ago. It's honestly quite shocking. Um, yeah. And no one would have believed you if you told them this back in 2007 and um, how the industry and also the economy has changed. Mm, do you know how long it took to dismantle the whole aircraft? Uh, did they start this year or did yeah, it, they, if they, I'm not mistaken? Yeah, they did. They started um, last January, uh, 2019 that is. So they got it done within 12 months, and the first thing the owner did was to rent out the engines. No one wanted to buy or lease the whole aircraft, but um, they at least managed to, to lease the engines back to Rolls-Royce. It was also quite a relief for the owner since there was still a senior debt that needed to be paid back. Um, there just is no secondary market for the model, and, and Highfly are the, the only ones who took uh, one second-hand A380 on lease for now. But didn't they say that they are thinking about adding another one as well? Yeah, but the the, the message is un, unchanged for now and, and vague. I mean, they're basically stating we will be looking into taking a second A380 in 2020. I mean, their A380 was in the news a lot, but not, not always for the right reasons, I would say. Um, I mean, that aircraft probably makes for its own topic, but um, let us revisit this thought come 2020, maybe. Um, good topic, actually. But um, I would be truly surprised if that that setup with Highfly and the, the lease that they, they, they have, if that setup really was economically viable for Highfly and the owner of the aircraft. Yeah, speaking of the owner, um, a lot of the early A380s are owned by German close-end funds. Yeah. So how are they doing? Surely not as advertised. No, 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 not at all. Um, those funds were aimed at retail investors, um, a pure retail play. So people who put 20 to 40,000 euros or, or US dollars, depending on the structure, in, into an investment. And those funds were originally planning to, to generate a return of, let's say, 8 to 10% per annum. But I would guess that the reality will be more like 2 to 3. So not really as planned, but not disastrous. Um as for example with the shipping funds, I would say. No, 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 correct. Um, it's, it's not even close. The, the shipping industry had fundamental issues which, which led to the insolvencies of hundreds and, yes, hundreds of German shipping funds. Um, the aviation industry is, is doing quite well. Well, more than quite well as we elaborated in our episodes one and two. Flights. <laughs> yeah, yes, 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 flights, not episodes. You were, you were waiting for me to do that, right? I can't say I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Uh, no, but, but um, yeah, back to the uh, A380, losing my plot here. Um, the industry is not, is not the problem. The A380 is. It, is. it is built to transport 500 plus passengers over distances up to, I believe, 14,000 km, 14, um, kilometers. And it does this quite profitably. And back in 2007, airport congestion was, was a big deal. Air traffic was growing at a much higher rate than the airport capacity. 
So an, an aircraft that could transport more passengers without taking up any additional airport gates, it just seemed like a very good idea. And the A380 still works well for airlines that use a hub and spoke model. So connecting passengers between the large national hubs. So the Middle Eastern airlines like Emirates, for instance, and Qatar, like we talked about earlier, tend to operate mainly long-haul flights. And the A380 fits well with their business model, and therefore they're also able to, uh, to operate the A380 uh, profitably. Yeah, yeah, and and but the trend for for most airlines is is away from from those hub and spoke models to more to point to point city pairs, the except the exception being the the Middle Eastern carriers due to location obviously, um, and this means passenger loads per flight is lower, and so smaller aircraft can therefore be used. And adding to the fact is that modern twin engines like A350 that you mentioned or, or the Dreamliner they're just cheaper to operate. Yeah, what I, what I also feel that some neglect to consider uh, before they introduced A380 was that more passengers for an airline, of course, uh, allow for fewer slots. Mm -hmm. But if an airline gives up a slot, that means uh, it will be taken over by another airline. <laughs> Good point, yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah, passengers and consumers today, we want flexibility. If an airline only offered departures twice a day and neither of those times fit me as the consumer, um, I will choose another airline with another departure time. Like passengers are really loyal to just one airline. Yeah, that, yeah that's, that's a very good point, yeah. Mm -hmm. And you also mentioned A350 and the Dreamliner, which leads us to yeah Singapore, Air France, and now Emirates pulling the A380 from their fleets and actually returning it to their owners once the initial lease term ends. Or simply using the aircraft as a source for spare parts, the spare parts, um, should they own it themselves. Yeah, and, and look how the whole industry is talking about the first four or five A380s that have been returned, about what will happen to them, will they be leased, will they be sold, will they be parted out. Um, but there are many dozen of A380s that will be returned to, to the respective owners over the next couple of years. And um, this will undoubtedly dilute any secondary market for, for even for the spare parts. And as as long there is as there is no material change in, in the market, it will be very very tough to to find a buyer for for the plane. Yeah, the disadvantage of owning something that very few others can use efficiently. Yeah, yeah. Be, I mean, because look what happened when when for example Air Berlin filed for insolvency two two years ago, I believe it was. I mean, did anybody really notice any problems finding new owners or lessees for for the A for the A three twenty fleet? No, not at all. No, not at all. You're very right, Frank. And I would say this actually brings us on to our second topics for today. Yeah, the, the tradability of, of the respective aircraft model is um, one of the, I'd say, four important factors when investing into aviation. I dare to guess and uh, put the respective asset manager and lessee down as two of the other uh, four you had in mind. Yeah, and you'd be absolutely correct, at least in my opinion, um, and yours, obviously. <laughs> so um, add the portfolio effect to it, and you're looking at what I would call the, the like four essential pillars of an aviation investment. We already uh, gave an idea regarding tradability, um, mm. or lack thereof, when talking yeah. about the A380. <laughs> and uh, regarding the creditworthiness of the lessee, um, let me put it this way. Whenever your lessee defaults, you normally incur a lot of costs. 
Yeah, the default of the lessee brings several issues and, and costs along. And actually, one of our listeners' questions um, was, what costs do arise if the lessee defaults? Well, um, well, probably more than you would think. Yeah, there's a lot of things you wouldn't think about as an investor. And uh, as you all probably know, when an airline defaults, it's a long process, repossessing and remarketing this aircraft before the sales proceeds can actually be obtained. And um, for investors and arrangers, it's critical to consider which jurisdiction, for instance, the airline mm -hmm. operates in. Um, as you pointed out with Air Berlin, Frank, uh, the, the aircraft were quickly and easily remarketed to other airlines. But one of the aspects here is that Air Berlin operates in Germany. And the legal system in Germany allows for a quick and smooth repossession um, of the aircraft to the owners. And other countries, uh, such as, for instance, India, has a history of a long repossession yeah. time. I don't know if you remember Kingfisher, uh, mm -hmm. but, uh, yeah, some people I've spoken to in the market uh, told me that some of the Kingfisher aircraft uh, actually was still in India 12 months after the airline defaulted. Lovely. Yeah. Yeah, and all of this costs money. Um, mm -hmm. And the legal And we know proceeds, who's paying it, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, all the legal proceeds, etc., are just getting the aircraft out. But in addition, when an airline defaults, you never know in what condition the aircraft will be returned in. Mm. Is it, can you actually go and pick it up where it's uh, based and fly out in the condition it's in? Um, on top of that, uh, the aircraft must be insured. So if the airline's defaulted, you have to pay for new insurance uh, while um, repossessing the aircraft. And... Of course, it sounds very obvious, but something that a lot of people might not think about. You actually need pilots. So you need to find pilots that are certified to fly this aircraft uh, type and are actually willing to travel to this location and bring this aircraft out to repossess it. Um, and when you've done that, you have to place the aircraft in storage, which costs money, and then... Uh, yeah, you have to do all the remarketing in order to find new owners. And all these factors results in very high costs in the mm. in a case of default. Yeah, I, I would say in, in oversimplified terms, um, current problem is that you, you either get a good lease rate or you get a good lessee. And, I mean, this is the direct result from, from all markets being flooded with cheap money since everybody is looking for some return from their investments. And I mean, this this demand-related yield compression makes it tough to to meet both your return goals and also the minimum threshold of what credit quality you you would still deem acceptable when it comes to airlines. Mm -hmm. True, and the portfolio effect is of course also well known. The overall risk of diversified portfolios is lower than um, than the sum of individual risks. So any default by LSE is less significant and the access supply of an aircraft type can be better compensated for in a portfolio. Yeah, and different durations also help cushion market downturns. So overall, yeah, risks and thus volatility are simply reduced. And uh, in addition, I'd like to, uh, to add that uh, I do agree with your uh, statements, Frank, but I think it's also... Uh, important for the investor to realize that the most important factor is the aircraft itself and not necessarily the lessee. So the mm -hmm. aircraft and the structure of the yeah. transaction. Because investors invest into secure transactions because it decreases the risk. 
So in theory, if the airline defaults, this is not an issue for the investor if the right aircraft and asset manager is in place. So with the right aircraft, I mean a liquid aircraft with a reasonable purchase price, um, and also the uh, where the senior lenders does not invest with too uh, high of an LTV. Absolutely. Speaking from the credit perspective there. Yeah. <laughs> and, and as you mentioned, um, I mean, with the right asset manager, obviously. So so because with the right asset manager in place, there there should be tools to just quickly and efficiently remarket the aircraft in, in case of a default. Exactly. And therefore, it is in theory irrelevant for the investors if they align default, if you if you don't think about all the costs that could be incurred, etc. Because if the secured assets so the aircraft can be sold and the investors don't lose any money, and uh, mm -hmm. then it's sort of from an expected loss perspective, we should be taking credit analysis here yeah. at Scope. Um, it's sort of irrelevant. Uh, and all the aspects have an impact on the credit risk of the investment. But if you only focus on the airline credit, then I would argue you might as well give a direct loan to the airline. Yeah, yeah fair enough, fair enough. And it is it is kind of the same when it comes to equity analysis. Um, if the type of aircraft is not even more important, if I dare to say, because um, the difference is in in equity analysis, the return to the investor is is highly dependent on the sales price of the aircraft after the lease ends. Um, yeah, I think now let me explain. So normally, the the senior loan that Helen you were talking about um, normally it amortizes over the term of the initial lease. Um, but the positive return to equity investors is, is generated after that and in general by the sales proceeds at, at the fund maturity if we are in a fund structure, which we mostly are when it comes to equity. So this bit can, can get a bit tricky even if the lessee has not defaulted through, throughout the lease term. There are of course also many external factors that can impact the risk of a transaction. Uh, that we should focus on for 2020. So, like some of those factors are more difficult to control uh, for an investor. Uh, for instance, like the market environment, world GDP growth, and also oil prices. Yeah, not not to mention like black swan events, as we like to call them, that are just difficult to impossible to predict, such as the issues currently encountered by Boeing. Not only with the with the 737 Max still grounded, um, more to that probably on future flights, but they um, have also been put in a spotlight for, for the pickle fork issues with the, with the um, 737 new generation. Yeah, and even if the pickle fork issue, um, it doesn't seem to have a massive cost implication, no. but mm. it, does, it will do something to the reputation of Boeing. And the same can be said for the troubles with the triple uh, 7X and the exploding door, which we discussed in a previous episode. Flight. Not, not episode. <laughs> Payback. <laughs> uh, actually, it was a passenger door, not a, not a, not a. Um, yeah, I believe it was a passenger door, not a cargo door. But doesn't really change the subject. No, no. no. I, I read it like some days ago. But um, no. And and also, let's not forget about the Dreamliner. Um, first, Boeing struggled with the batteries on the model, and nowadays it's the issue lies with the Trent engines. I mean, even though the engines are not produced by Boeing, they, they do affect Boeing aircraft. 
Yeah, and all in all, these incidents and that all of them are arriving at once could have an effect on the market value of Boeing aircraft, mm-hmm. um, both through airlines' perception and frustration with Boeing, but also because uh, of the attention the issue actually get in mainstream media. It could give passengers a negative view on Boeing aircraft in general. Yeah, and let's 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 only hope that 2020 is a better year for Boeing. I mean, hard to be worse. Um, and this again brings us to the next topic, um, namely an airline with a large Boeing fleet, including the uh, infamous 737 Max. There have been uh, loads of news in the media lately about the development of Norwegian. Uh, going a few months back, the CEO and one of the founders of Norwegian, Bjorn Schulz, he stepped down as CEO. Um, he has now been replaced by Jakob Skram, um, and Skram, Skram has no experience in aviation, even though he has a very impressive track record in the gas station retail business. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure how that can be. Good, yeah. good for him. Yeah. yeah, gas stations, oil, oil airlines. Um, the interim CEO of the shoes uh, stepped down was Geir Carlsen, and Carlsen will continue as the CFO and deputy um, CEO, to my knowledge, at least according to the media. I actually just learned how to pronounce all these names, um, so thank you to my Norwegian colleague. Um, <laughs> so am I right in saying that, that Carlsen, the one name that I can pronounce, um, he also doesn't have any past experience in aviation before he joined Norwegian. In when was it? April two years ago, I believe. Yeah, 2018. Yeah, mm. yeah. No, to my knowledge, at least that's correct. Um, I have to say, though, I think he's done an impressive job as CFO since he joined Norwegian. Mm-hmm. Um, but the airline industry is—it's quite a special industry, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So. The fact that none of them have any aviation experience or experience with airlines in the past, it could it could be both a positive and a negative. Um, both uh, Guy Carlson and Jakob Skram have sensitive, uh, oh sorry, extensive experience in other industries, and a new and fresh perspective on the airline very beneficial. But I'm also like a tiny bit worried that the lack of experience in aviation might propose some obstacles. Obstacles, um, but yeah, only time will tell. I would say. Yeah, and since shoes is that how you pronounce it? Perfect shoes. Shoes. Since shoes stepped down, um, quite a few changes have already been made. Um, top headlines lately started with Norwegian cutting all long haul routes out of Sweden and Denmark. This could potentially be a good thing, though. Yeah. Oh, I agree. Uh, the the long haul business model was was it has taken a toll on the company's financial position, and this just confirms what many thought that a long haul low cost is just a difficult business to be in, if not even an impossible strategy. Yeah, and especially for an airline such as Norwegian, um, they have had a growth focus uh, rather than a focus on profitability. And the growth in the long-haul market has dramatically increased um, their market share and also mm-hmm. branding. But financially, it's not exactly been the success I think they were hoping for. No, and I think the cuts just, just mentions they were a financial sound decision um, and they helped them reduce costs in a very challenging market environment. Um, and in addition to cutting some of their long-haul operations, they have they have also announced that they were selling their Argentinian subsidiary to to JetSmart. And apparently, this um, JetSmart, this South American ultra low-cost carrier, it is taking 100% of the shares of of Norwegian Air Argentina. 
And this is also a positive move to improve the financials of Norwegian. And also it helps the new strategy of bringing the airline from away from growth and to profitability instead. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it has been a challenging season for Norwegian and due to competitive market, all the issues with the Dreamliner as well as obviously the grounding of the 737 MAX. And um, Norwegian has currently 18, if I believe, MAX in their in their fleet, which are well, obviously grounded. Um, but after all these announcements, I think the latest announcement, it surprised me the most. Oh, are you talking about the Slotset Heathrow, Frank? In case, I completely agree. Yeah, I, I, I certainly do. Um, according to the news, they, they have been granted six slots at London Heathrow. I read that they asked for 14, but they only got six, three landing, three for takeoff. And it is a bit of a mystery to me how this fits into Norwegian's new strategy, or the old one, to be frank. No, no pun intended here. <laughs> um, yeah, especially with the high demand at London Heathrow, and also the rule that airlines must operate, um, operate slots 80% of the time. If not, they will mm -hmm. lose them. Yeah. And um, due to the cost of holding these slots, combined with only having yeah, six slots. Only six guys, yeah. I, yeah, I don't. I, I I can't see really see how this can be a part of a long haul of cost strategy. But yeah, I mean maybe it's it's the one investment they they made to to just ensure that they don't lose out on market share and offer new nations to to the clients. But maybe they are happy with operating at a loss at Heathrow for for another strategic reason. Yeah, it could it could of course also be a sign that Norwegian strategy will be dramatically changed again. Again, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> or potentially that they've, they've seen um, the long-haul flights out of smaller airports aren't really as attractive to their customers. So maybe after cutting the long-haul operations out of Sweden and Denmark, that they will fly to some of those destinations out of London. Yeah, but the question is then, with only six slots, how will they deal with, with all the feeder traffic? Maybe they're hoping that their customers are fine with traveling between airports during the layover. <laughs> uh, or well, potentially they... Would you be happy with that? <laughs> no, I would not. But <laughs> maybe some, some of the backpackers with plenty of time. Mm. Or uh, potentially they, it could be that they hope obtaining the passengers uh, just from the UK market. Yeah, probably the most logical... Explanation, yeah, and it will be very interesting to see how this this develops. And I, I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if if there are more announcements from them to come in the new year. Um, in any case, uh, I would say we wish Norwegian the best of luck yes, and look forward absolutely. to seeing, yeah, where this direction uh, of the airline leads them. And yeah, I believe this was the end of today's episode. Um, we will catch up with all you all again after the Christmas holidays. So happy holiday. Happy holiday season to you all, and all the best for the new year to you as well, Frank. Thank you. So, this ends today's episode. Please feel free to leave your comment or requests for topics with us, or simply reach out to Helen or me on LinkedIn. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and spread the word, if you like this format and its content. We hope you're tuning in again next month for our next flight. <laughs>